Welcome to another episode of The Examined Athlete. I'm Clay Reichenbach. Today's episode, it's just special. The guest is special, the story is special, and the message is beyond special. It's easily one of the most important topics I've covered thus far. Today, my guest is Kenny Thompson Jr., And though Kenny is a bit older than I am, we both grew up in a town called Pflugerville, Texas, which is a suburb of Austin, Texas, and we were both baseball players, which allowed us to run in some of the same circles and share many of the same experiences growing up. Kenny went on to play baseball at Texas Christian University, and then after his athletic career ended, he went right into public service. He joined the Obama presidential campaign long before it was popular to do so, as you'll hear, and he played a key role on the Obama team throughout the entire presidency. Kenny's story is inspiring. It's compelling without question. However, the reason I believe this episode is so special, the reason I believe it's so important, is the topics we cover outside of politics. Topics like, how should we treat another human being? Specifically, an intellectual opponent. How do you deal with criticism? At times, unfair criticism. How do you avoid becoming a cynic? How do you solve complex problems and resolve conflicts together, with an emphasis on together? And we finish with a discussion about the importance of ideas like honor and dignity and respect. I so hope people will listen to Kenny's message because it really is a powerful one. And I really, really appreciated him coming on to share that message. Kenny, thank you so much for being a part of this. Thank you for being honest. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing your message. I'm certainly proud to know you and call you a friend, and I am so proud to be a part of this conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, Kenny Thompson, Jr., All right, Kenny. Well, thanks so much for joining me, buddy. The goal today is to walk through your journey a bit, obviously, and learn how a baseball player from a small town in Texas ends up on Air Force One with the president. But before we get there, I was trying to figure out how to start this thing. And I came across this picture of you in a cowboy hat with President Obama. And he looked like he was probably giving you a well-deserved hard time (laughs) for it. So I wanted you to add some color to that picture. What was happening there in that picture that Ended up with you in a cowboy hat. Yeah, well, Clay, good to see you, man. It's been too long since 1999, dude. Like, I'm so sorry I left you straight in on third base. I still think about that. I don't know why I didn't swing at that pitch. But, uh, yeah, man, that picture is from Pueblo, Colorado in 2008. It was a uh, one of the very last stops in the campaign. And we were on uh, fairgrounds in Pueblo. And we got the call that the senator was on his way. And... I literally just grabbed this hat. It was just sitting on a barrel. I just grabbed the hat and put it on my head. It happened to fit. It was a little tight, but it happened to fit. And he gets off the bus and he was just like, what is this? I mean, come on, man. Like, and that's the picture. It was really just a spontaneous thing that I just tried to, you know, lighten up the mood. It's things are getting a little tense there at the end of the campaign. So I know he'd been on the bus for. A while traveling across Colorado. So I just wanted to do something cool and funny and it worked out. 
I thought maybe you were the low man on the totem pole, and they're like, "Hey, Thompson, you're from Texas. Put this cowboy." <laughs> well, hat that's on. true. That's 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 definitely true. Low man on the totem pole. I did have my own cowboy boots, so I was trying to play up my Texas bona fides there. But yeah, it was totally just random, man. Okay, well, let's go back to the very beginning here. I know you well enough to know you've always been an outstanding athlete. But I'm curious, outside of sports, how would you have described yourself growing up? What type of kid were you? Yeah, you know, I was a pretty curious kid. If you probably don't recall, but I'm an only child, so I was like by myself a lot. I like to read a lot. Just love to explore and do things like on my own. My, both my parents were working a lot, so I was just sort of left my own devices. Really got into social studies pretty early, man. I had some really good teachers in elementary school and middle school that just sort of kind of just stuck with me. So I spent a lot of time just like reading history and whatever fourth graders learned about politics at the time. Yeah, man, I was just a curious kid and obviously loved athletics, obviously loved sports, loved being around my teammates and friends. And, you know, like you said, we grew up in a small town and I went to school virtually with the same people for 12 years. So um, you get to know people pretty well. You get to know their families pretty well. You know, that's one thing I, I'm so grateful for is my childhood. I had a, a great childhood in Pflugerville. still think about it often. It was just such a great foundation for me in the rest of my life. I wasn't planning on going here, but since you mentioned Pflugerville and growing up there, I just actually got together with some old friends from Pflugerville. And we sat down and had this really interesting conversation about the unique place we grew up in that we all mingled together. It didn't matter your race. It didn't matter your religion. We dated each other. We partied together. We played sports together. In the case of my brother, we married each other. And I asked some of the kids that I went to school with that weren't a white man like me, the women and minorities, whether or not that was my privilege speaking. Did we have an interesting kind of unique little place in the world to grow up? And they all kind of agreed. Would you agree with that, that we grew up in the kind of unique area where we really were friends and we really cared about each other and we didn't think much about about our differences we thought about the things that made us the same yeah i mean look it was a great place to grow up i try to explain it to people that it was one third white one third black one third hispanic was virtually we were all a big melting pot i mean look there were things that were different for me than they were for you there were certain situations that i would never want to find myself in in Pflugerville. But that being said, I think that the everyday going to school, hanging out, it was a very unique opportunity to really get to know people who weren't like you, but have to interact and engage with them on a regular basis, which really formed the, the foundation for building relationships that matter and that are long lasting. So yeah, I mean, I think about riding our bikes and just hanging out. And I, I look at my pictures from high school and middle school, and it's virtually every race and every picture. And I don't think a lot of people have that experience. So I definitely think being in a suburb of uh, a metropolitan city where a lot of new families were moving out, blacks and Hispanics getting their first home in a virtually white neighborhood or white city, we hit that that bubble, that time frame, like right at the right time. And we were just sort of all there at the same time and uh, very unique. I mean, look, we had one high school virtually the whole time, three middle schools or something like that. But 
So we're all forced, literally <laughs> forced to be together all the time. So uh, that's very interesting, very interesting, uh, and really grateful for that opportunity. You mentioned politics at an early age, reading, I think you said the fourth grade, which is definitely early in my opinion. If I remember correctly, your father was maybe involved in local politics. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. He was on the school board for a number of years. And so you were aware pretty early in life that politics would maybe be your profession or your route. Is this correct? How did that influence you growing up? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think my dad being so engaged locally, running for office, losing once, winning twice, really got me just to understand that social sciences and politics matter. And I just got really interested in it. I remember watching a debate, maybe I was 12, yeah, 1992, and I was super interested. It was Bill Clinton, Ross Perot, George Bush. And I just remember being like, oh, wow, this is really cool. Just being interested in knowing that, oh, like, we're going to vote for the person who's going to lead the free world. <laughs> it just really always had my, I was just really interested in, in like learning more. So, and maybe because I was a terrible math student, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, but like, I just uh, really got into it really early. I think we all grew up wanting to be our dad, so that maybe yeah. has something yeah, to do absolutely. with it. What about outside of your house? Did you have any influences, heroes? Who did you look up to out, outside the home? My dad did a really good job of exposing me to a lot of different individuals. One of the things we sort of hit on is, you know, athletics. But one of the things I don't, I haven't shared very much is, you know, I played baseball in Pflugerville, but when I played basketball, we went to East Austin so I could have a different experience, a different set of individuals to know and meet. And my dad was constantly reminding me that, look, we've done pretty well, but just three to four miles away, there's a completely different, completely different living. And I had to go over there and then play basketball and learn a lot from kids that I never interacted with in school, right? These kids went to school at LBJ, Crockett, you know, the Austin schools. And that was my exposure to that. And it gave me a really good perspective. So I had some great coaches. L.D. Washington, who just recently passed away, was an awesome basketball coach. Really a, a tough guy, but with a just a gentle giant. And really taught me, you know, the fundamentals of basketball. And really that hustling always wins. If you just hustle, it'll work out for you. And I just really stuck with me throughout my athletic career, but also in my work experience. So... I think it's really that that piece of time, that, that time in my life where my dad was really cognizant and taking me to different parts of Austin to make sure that I didn't forget that, hey, listen, I know we're on, on the up and up, but it didn't always start this way. No, it, it won't always be this way necessarily. So it was important for him to remind me that I've got, I should be grateful for what we've got, but don't forget to, about other folks that are living really close to you. Well, Bud, it sounds like you stood on some tall shoulders there. That's quite evolved, and especially in the 90s, I think yeah. that was quite evolved. I think more people speak and think in that manner now, but it wasn't always that way. So you mentioned basketball. You, I know you were a great basketball player, but you ended up taking a baseball scholarship to TCU, Texas Christian University. Explain how you ended up at TCU. Yeah, look, I mean, that senior year, I basically decided my junior year, that I wanted to play baseball. There was something about it. I just, I loved our team. I loved playing summer ball. I loved just being on the field. Basketball was always something that I loved. But at a certain point, I just wanted to be out 
on the outfield all the time. We had a really good summer year that going into our senior year, playing and traveling the country, playing select baseball. And just who'd you play with, by the way? I played with Austin Slam. Okay. Yeah, I played with Slam. We had a good year. Me, Jacob Moss, Jeremy Johnson had a great year. And then our senior year, I guess my senior year, your sophomore year, we had a pretty good baseball season. I think we overachieved. We had a, a couple seniors and a bunch of sophomores that were running the show. And, you know, I got a, a couple calls, not, not too many colleges, a couple of JUCOs, TCU and Houston. But I wanted to Honestly, Clay, I wanted to go to Oklahoma, man. Like, I really just wanted to go to Oklahoma. I think I was just force-fed UT for so long. Like, I was like, get me out of here. I wanted to walk on in Oklahoma, but I ended up stopping by TCU. I called a guy named Eric Maha, who played Slam with me, and he was at TCU. And I had gotten one letter from them, man. And, like, I stopped by campus, and, and that was it. I was just like, I, this is where I wanted to be. It was super fortuitous. I mean, I wasn't the greatest player. I had to be fast. I could hit a little bit, but I just loved the campus. And I, I and honestly, the thing that drew me to TCU, I guess that solidified me going to TCU was just the, the student to professor ratio. Coming from a small town like we did, I was honestly pretty scared to go to a massive university with 30,000, 40,000 people. So going to TCU with 9,000 people seemed much more manageable for me. And it was a little closer to home, right? So you can pop down 35 and get home pretty quickly. So that's really how it all felt came together, man. Like it wasn't as much as I love TCU, I will be a frog for life now. I wasn't like that before I went. Since you mentioned that senior year, I don't know if I've ever even told this story, but I was pulled up to varsity that year and I still look at you guys as kind of the big kids, you know, and I was playing with the big kids and I'll never forget. And you'll probably remember this is all the senior parents would sit right along the batter circle, your parents, everyone's parents. And every time I walked out there as a sophomore and I wasn't playing great. I just felt like they were just daggers in my back. Like, what is this kid doing on my kid's varsity baseball team? And I was just completely insecure the entire time I was there. But I say that to ask this next question. What were your expectations coming into TCU? And maybe more than that, what was your confidence level? It, as a student or an athlete, you can take that both ways. Yeah, look, on the baseball side, I love college baseball. That's all I wanted to do was play college baseball. So when I had that opportunity to go to TCU to play college baseball, I mean, we would skip class our senior year to go down the dish fog and watch those Friday afternoon games when Texas was playing. And that's where I wanted to be. I wanted to play at dish fog. I wanted to play against Texas. And I knew that TCU would give me that opportunity. But my expectations were honestly high, to be honest, because of where we came from and the athletic success I had had up until that point in virtually every sport. So when I got to TCU and recognized really quickly that like, oh, I may be the worst player on this field. I may be, you know, I may be a good athlete, but as far as baseball skills, I had a long way to go. And in the classroom, I felt somewhat lost at the beginning, to be honest, man. Like coming from the community that we came from, a very diverse community, and then being sort of thrown into a uh, university with a black population of maybe four to six percent at the time, it was a completely different place, a, a culture shock, you know? It was very rare 
that I would be the only black person in somewhere in Pflugerville. Very, very few times. But at, at TCU, particularly those first couple years, like absolutely. In Fort Worth, absolutely. So that was a big change for me. And I felt really uncomfortable the first semester at TCU. Um, it wasn't great. Probably the first year was not great. Really homesick. Wasn't playing well. Was redshirted pretty quickly. So I knew I wasn't going to play. I, I met some great people, though. Great teammates. But yeah, that was a rough year. 99, 2000. That was a, a pretty eye-opening year. I worked really hard. I did really well in school. But socially and culturally, I struggled. I struggled to figure out where I was supposed to be, where I fit in. I didn't have my crew like I did in high school. A lot of the players knew each other from, from where they went to school or, or from high school. So I was just a, a little, just kind of wandering around a little bit that first, those first two years at TCU. Did your confidence take a hit or did you keep that Kenny Thompson confidence somewhere down that kept you moving forward? I think that my confidence definitely took a hit. I mean, it just took a hit naturally from not succeeding the way that I was used to succeeding to not meet expectations the way that I was used to meeting expectations. And that was a, a pivotal turning point. I thought about transferring. I thought about, you know, maybe this whole thing isn't for me. But my parents were, no, you're sticking to TCU. You've made a commitment. You're going to do it. But no, my confidence level definitely took a hit. And, you know, classes were hard. Didn't have the support that I had in, in high school. Had a really hard time with time management, to be honest, at the beginning. Just understanding that athletics took so much time, but academics took equally as much time, but there was no extra time in the day. So like, just figuring out that piece took me a while. It took me a while to kind of get my rhythm. Because I felt so unsteady at times, it definitely shook my confidence, like no doubt. What got you on the right track? Where did you find your confidence? Where did you find your tribe? Where did you find kind of your academic legs? You know, it was that summer after my sophomore year, I ended up playing a lot in 2001. And I was having a great year. I had finally sort of found my rhythm with the team. I got to know some of the older players. A couple of the guys took me under their wings. Guys like Tom Bates and Kate Harris and folks that I still talk to today just sort of made me their guy. And that really helped. It made me feel a part of the team, made me feel a part of the university. And also, Clay, I started doing things outside of baseball, right? I started, I joined some clubs. I got to know people outside of athletics just to remind myself that I have other interests, that I'm good at things, that people want me around. And it really helped me to sort of become more well-rounded like I was before. And, you know, having a good season doesn't hurt either. <laughs> so, Starting and playing and playing well doesn't hurt, and that helped a lot. But as soon as I got in a rhythm, I broke my arm, and the season was over. Just like that. I mean, I remember it like it happened yesterday. Diving for a ball and snapped my arm. And just like that, the season was gone, and I, had to, I was forced to do other things, right? I was forced to put baseball aside because I literally couldn't do anything. And find some other things I was interested in or, or dive in or dive back into the things that I was interested in before. And that's when I got involved in like campus Democrats or doing some in, interning and things like that, just to sort of expand my horizon where I just didn't have that time before while I was a full time baseball player. Well, what I'm hearing is find some other areas to develop confidence, too. Yeah. 
and I know you joined a lot of groups, but you started with athletics. And I think for all athletes, that's where we grew up developing confidence. That's where we grew up developing belonging. And I just had a psychologist from Rice University on who started an initiative at Rice to change the perception of student athletes there. But one of the things that we lingered on is what you just said is take the time to join those academic circles and to engage in those academic circles. And you may not be as prepared. You mentioned kind of in the classroom being a bit overwhelmed. I remember sitting in this upper level statistics class and not knowing what the summation symbol was. He was writing and I'm going, I don't know what this is. At Rice, I was certainly insecure, but that confidence from the athletic field for me transferred over into academics and allowed me to join those circles and maybe keep my mouth shut when I wasn't quite ready to contribute, but engage. And then where I excelled, I could also show up and add that to the group. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I don't recommend breaking your arm to find your path forward, but <laughs> but for me, it was a blessing in disguise. I was a completely different athlete, a completely different teammate and student at TCU after that year. And had that not happened, who knows what would have happened, but I, I know that for sure, because it did, I took a little bit of a different path and a little different mindset going into athletics, going into baseball, just because... I knew I had other interests. I knew that like, if this didn't work out, it's going to be fine. I don't have to put all my eggs in this basket. And understanding that, okay, I'm good at some other things. I've got some other skill set. And I'm also interested in learning more about other things. Um, for me, it really opened up or unlocked some things in my mind. So it really helped me out. You're saying the phrases that would go through my head oftentimes when I was playing sports is that I was more than this. And I, I oftentimes wanted people to know that. Let's talk about the end of your athletic career. Did, did you feel like you met or exceeded your athletic expectations? Did you feel like a success at the end of your athletic career? How'd that go? I did. And I'll tell you why. Our last year, my, my fifth year at TCU, we got a new head coach. We were mediocre at best. I mean, you probably remember we were always middle of the pack, maybe make the playoffs, maybe not. But my fifth year, we got a new head coach, Jim Schlossnagel, who had come over from UNLV. And as soon as he stepped on campus, Clay, our team changed immediately. Our attitude changed. It really, for the first time in a long time, I saw how leadership can have a direct impact, immediate impact on a team, a psyche, a culture. And that fifth year was by far the best year of my college career, but also one of the best years of my life. We started winning. It was fun. We worked hard. We got to know each other in a more a deeper way. Coach is really about building culture and about building relationships. And he put the time and effort into making sure that, you know, we got to know each other as people. And uh, we just didn't have that before. And I think that translated to success on the field. It certainly translated to success off the field. And we hadn't won a conference championship in 10 years. So that he shows up we, and we win one. I don't think that is luck. I don't think that is by happenstance. I think he saw potential in us that we didn't see in ourselves. And for me, that year... People, when I talk about TCU, I'm mostly talking about that one year. It's hilarious because people think I played for Coach Sashnagel for five years, but it's really for one. <laughs> but um, he's been a great mentor, a great friend. He just recently took the job at Texas A&M. But in his 17 years at TCU, uh, 
I mean, five college world series appearances, countless conference championships. It's no, it's, it's not luck. And it's, it's about building something. And to be on the very ground floor of where TCU baseball is now, I will never take that for granted because I could have transferred. He could not have come. But what I learned from him, I've used off the field every day. And that's probably the most important thing that I've taken from coach. One of the reasons I titled this podcast like I did is because sport is such a great metaphor for life. And that's come up two or three times already. This podcast isn't about sport. It's about life. It's about life lessons, as the tagline says, bigger than sport. And what I've found, and it sounds like what you found, is what made us successful in athletics also makes us successful off the field. It's typically our greatest strengths off the field. And it sounds like you learned that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, athletics done the right way, coached the right way. You're put in the situation with people from different backgrounds, different religions, different races, different experiences, and you're asked to achieve a goal. The only way to do that is to work together. The only way to do that is to get to know each other. The only way to do that is to build relationships and to understand the strengths and weaknesses of your teammates and your brothers. So, of course, for me, it was a somewhat easy transition into the best private sector or public sector because I understood what it took to, to win and to be successful. And it's about people. It's about understanding uh, where they're coming from, being empathetic, listening and figuring out the best ways that you can succeed together. And there is no doubt in my mind without my experience as an athlete that I would have, uh, I think, such a comprehensive grasp of what that means. Yeah, we may not look the same. We may not think the same. But if we want to win, if we want to improve, if we want to progress, we better all start pulling the same direction. I, I totally agree. Let's get into your professional journey a bit. Coming out of school, did you have this grand plan? I believe you did go straight into politics, right? Yeah, I, I didn't really have a grand plan, but I wanted to get into politics. And I, the first campaign I ever joined right after college in Florida was a Senate campaign and we lost and I wasn't used to losing. <laughs> so it turns out if you lose a campaign, like that's it. You're unemployed. <laughs> so I had, that was a new experience for me. So in 2004, we lost uh, that Senate race. I drove from Tampa back to Pflugerville that, that very night. And was just sort of lost. I substitute taught for a while at, at our high school and our middle school, which was an awesome experience just to be back and be on the other side of it for a while. But then I got lucky and I, uh, I applied for a job at the Chamber of Commerce in Austin and was fortunate enough to get it. A TCU grad helped me out there. And I was really the entry point into my political career, right? Like I was able to network and, and learn and meet people who were in Austin politics. And at the time, I wanted to be mayor. Like that was my end goal is to be mayor of Austin. That's what I wanted to do. Fortunately for me, uh, I met a woman who was running for city council. I just told her I just managed this, or, or worked on a Senate campaign in Florida and I'm a cheap hire, so I'll do it. <laughs> and uh, so we managed a campaign. She ended up winning. And she was the first African-American woman on the Austin City Council. And so I went to City Hall. And that's basically where I cut my teeth. Local city politics, zoning, stop signs, 
drainage ditches, all that stuff that really is on the ground politics. That's where I was. That's where I was. It was a great experience. Great team. I learned so much. That's one of the things when you are a local politician, people know your phone number. People know where you live. You are held accountable to what you do or don't do. And uh, there was nothing like that, having having that uh, experience at such an early age. I think it was like 24, 25. So that was pretty cool. I want to pause and ask you why you wanted to be mayor and what's behind that. Be And the reason I'm asking you, Kenny, is because for a long time in my life, I think I set goals the wrong way. And I'm not saying that's a bad goal, but like, for instance, I've said this before on the podcast, I subscribed to Forbes magazine in middle school and decided <laughs> I wanted to be, I wanted to be on the Forbes 400. Yeah. And I learned later on in life that that's a, a really shitty goal. And so I'm, I started asking myself why, 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 and getting down, what was your why there? Why mayor? Did you want to make a change? What was that all about? Well, it's a really good point, man. Like I think one, I'm not mayor of Austin, nor do I want to be mayor of Austin. I want to talk a little bit about expectations. I think we talked about it a little bit earlier, but expectations can be great. They absolutely can be a motivator, your expectations of yourself, others' expectations of you. But what you have to be careful of and what I was not careful of and what I still struggle with is managing the expectations versus what I think is what I want to do. Am I doing something that because I want to or am I doing it because I'm expected to? That is something that I've continually struggled throughout my professional life as well and personal life, honestly. You know, for me, I thought, you know what, at the time, being a young 20-something, I'm not going to be a professional baseball player. No one really expected that of me in the first place. But I think people expected me to do big things. And at the time, I thought, you know, being mayor of Austin would be a great accomplishment. Yeah, man, like if I really think about it, I... I really believe that at the time, I love politics. I thought that was a, the crowning achievement. I think that's for me, like, if I get this, if I get this job, if I earn this job, I will have succeeded in life. And that's not true. But at the time, I, do, I believe that. I believe that that would be my crowning achievement and to be the first black mayor of Austin. And it was based on nothing but just expectations, right? So, Kenny, you are speaking to my soul. I, for so many years, and I think still do, where it's always a journey. Like, I'm supposed to be this big deal. And what that led to for me is a constant feeling of underachievement, no matter what I achieved. And I had tremendous success in all walks of life. And that's what I'm talking about there. I did the same thing where it was like, I need to be mayor because I'm supposed to be a big deal. And people from my hometown, think of me as successful. I think that's a great message to be really careful where you're putting your expectations or at least where you're putting your purpose. You can use those things to drive you. That's fine. But remember that that doesn't give you value because I I, did, I ended up in that same trap over and over again. And like you said, I still do. And I think I always will. Yeah. Let's fast forward a bit. Do you remember when you first became aware of Barack Obama? I do. I came, became aware of him in 2004. He gave a very, uh, yeah, 2004 convention speech, probably one of his most famous speeches. And that's why I first became aware of him. Obviously started tracking his career a little bit. You know, when you're on, you've seen so many people who are in politics, that quick rise, but it doesn't mean it's sustainable. 
it doesn't mean you're going to be around forever. You can have one good speech and that could be your whole deal. So, but obviously that's not the case. But at the time, I was just, I was super impressed by his speech, but didn't know much about him. So when did the decision come that I'm, I want to be part of what he's creating? It was really interesting because I, I was working at City Hall doing my regular job, you know, and he announced he was running for president in 2007. And I don't know if you remember this, but he came to Austin pretty early on, late February of 2007. And the campaign came to City Hall to ask for permits for the park and for police overtime and closing down streets and all those things. And I got, I got to help out on that. I got to help out putting the event together. And, you know, at the time, I think John Edwards was running and Hillary was running. And I was still sort of like, you know, I'm happy to help, but I'm not sure who I'm going to be supporting. But at the event, I had the opportunity to sit with him for about two minutes just before the event. And we're sitting in this golf cart, just me and him. And he was just asking me a bunch of questions about myself, like, where are you from? Where you live? Tell me about this place. You know, things like that. And I would just drank all the Kool-Aid, man. Like I was just in. And it was just his authenticity. He's being very genuine. We talked a little bit about sports. And, you know, I having that opportunity at such a young age, 25, maybe 26 at the time. But I was just hooked. And to see the excitement that he created, I'd never seen anything like that in my life. All the sporting events combined seeing 20,000 people there to see one person was pretty overwhelming. And I had never seen anything like that in my life. So I was all in at that point. I I worked really hard to figure out how to get on that campaign from that day on. Well, I find that fascinating because that's when I was researching you, I'm thinking at that time, you mentioned it, he was certainly far from the favorite. Oh, yeah. And you you mentioned not liking being on a losing team. The probability said you were joining a losing team. And I think it speaks to that meeting or speaks to him to say that I'm joining this team. I'm inspired to join this team. I don't care what the smart money says. Yeah. I mean, look, I got a lot of pushback from people. I was working at city hall. I had a great job. And when I got the call from the campaign, like, Hey, do you want to come to work with us full time? I dove in, but by far, by far, I mean, 90 to 10% was like, no, he's not going to win. He's not ready. He may be, he may be a VP, but he's not going to go all the way. So, but to my parents' credit, they were just like, get out of here. Like, go do this. This is something that you won't regret doing. If it's over in six months, we'll figure it out. But they were very much get, get out of the door and, and go travel the country. And so grateful that I did. But the smart money was definitely not on Obama for America in 2007. And what was your role with the campaign? Yeah, so I did advance. So basically, wherever he went, I went four to five days ahead to help set up the events and meet the local officials and plan the schedule and things of that nature. So it was an awesome job that I never want to do again because I don't want to live out of a suitcase ever again. But um, what a great way to see the country, right? Such a obviously historic campaign working for a guy that I admire and like, and I'm so grateful to have a relationship with him. But what a, it was just an awesome experience. Um, very hard job, very hard, very, there were some ups and downs in that campaign, as you probably recall, but overall, what a fantastic experience. I want you to describe the moment, or maybe it's not a moment, but just describe the transition from 
hey, this is an inspiring guy, has a chance to be the first black president of the United States that I want to support to, holy shit, we may do this. Where, where, where did that happen? You know, honestly, that happened after, just after the primary. That primary was really hard. I mean, we're going against John Edwards and Hillary Clinton, and no one thought when I started the campaign that we could win. The only people who thought that we could win were the people who were working on the campaign. And um, as things started to build and progress and you get through a couple of primaries and we went, we win the Iowa caucus and you're sort of just like, Oh, okay. Like, so I'm not going back to Austin anytime soon. Like we're locking in loaded and we're, we're traveling the country. We're going to do this. But when we finally clinched that, the nomination in, in May of 08, it was sort of an overwhelming feeling of, oh my goodness, like it's a World Series. We're in it. Like we have a chance to win this whole thing. <laughs> and, you know, I just remember, I remember winning the primary, but still having people doubt that he could win the whole thing. And I think that for me was more of a motivating factor than anything. I, I knew that America was ready. I really believed it. So just thinking about how hard that campaign was and how hard people worked, but how uncertain people were. I mean, just they had no idea that he could pull this off. A lot of people just didn't. It never had happened before. So the moment I will always cherish is when we actually did win, Clay. That November day in Chicago, the whole campaign was there. My grandfather, God love him, he never thought Barack Obama could pull this thing off. Not in a million years. As a black man growing up in the United States, he said, no matter, no matter what, there's this not going to happen. That was the first person I called when they called this race. Just to say thank you for believing me. But I mean, just to hear the excitement and the disbelief in his voice. Um, he just said, you guys did it. You did it. And I can still hear it through. I can hear the crowd chanting in one ear, but my grandfather saying, you guys did it and the other. And that moment is something that I will always cherish because there were so many people who just believed that we would never cross the finish line. When we did, it was just an unbelievable feeling. I I literally have chill bumps listening to you talk. And I'm not some big Barack Obama supporter. I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. But for you to learn that lesson so early in life and in real time that long shots aren't nearly as long as you think and then get to share that moment with your grandfather is damn it's powerful man it's really powerful and i can remember talk hearing people say that like his name didn't test well and i'm sure it didn't so it's not just that he's a black man he's got a black man with a name that sounds odd you know and to hear those things, but yet say, we're going to believe and we're going to make space for greatness because if we don't, it ain't happening. And that's a powerful story. And like I said, I don't really care where your politics lie. If you can't get moved from that story, then I don't know if I care to hang out with you. That's pretty <laughs> awesome. But let's talk about coming into the White House it had to be somewhat overwhelming. I assume there was substantial doubt, maybe like college again, some insecurity. What was your mindset coming in where now all of a sudden you're coordinating logistics for Air Force One and Marine One and the President of the United States? Yeah, look, it's uh, one of those things where every day you walk in, it feels like the first day. It's a remarkable place to work. That's uh, something that I will always remember. But 
the overwhelming sense was not doubt, but just, all right, like I'm a 27 year old kid walking into this White House and there's some pretty important people counting on me to do my job. Not only do my job, but do it well every day. And I was overwhelmed at first. I was overwhelmed at first. The travel schedule, the new, just the new infrastructure of Secret Service and the military aspect and obviously more staff and secretaries of defense and state and, you know, you name it, just all sort of converging and being the center of working at the center of all American politics and if not global politics, right? So it was like very overwhelming. I will say the saving grace for me was my colleagues. We were all in the same situation. My teammates were all in the same situation. We know our job. We know it's hard, but we know what our goals are. And having that infrastructure, relationship-based infrastructure, knowing that I can count on my teammates, they can count on me, really set the stage for success, right? I mean, it was just one of those things where you could be honest and say, I'm having a, I'm having a terrible day and somebody's going to pick up some slack for you. And the same thing would happen in reverse, right? And that's how, that's how I got through, honestly. Well, I think it's we go back to the team. I mean, the thing you learned in sports, and we go back to having a great team and how important that is. And a team that is supportive and complements maybe the assets that you don't have. I'm really fascinated in this, Kenny. How do you get up to speed? Is there some sort of training? I mean, obviously, you're good at what you do. But just the logistics alone, I mean, where do I go for this? Where do I go for that? I mean, every step the president's taking has to be planned in advance. What is the training like or is there training? Yes, pretty much on the job training. I will say we were really we were really lucky that the previous administration, the Bush administration, were so gracious to us and really helped us figure out where the lights are and who to ask for questions. That is so refreshing to hear, by the way. God, that's refreshing. You know, they were just fantastic. I mean, I'm still friends with several of those folks. And they were just very gracious. You know, I think we've gotten away from a lot of that. But at the time, we were so fortunate to have an outgoing administration that really took the time during the transition period to get us up to speed, to show us how to do things, to help us figure out how to coordinate. And... That three months between election day and inauguration day, it's crucial. You got, you want to hit the ground running. And without their help, there is no way we would have been able to do uh, what we're able to do so fast. I think that that is something that is underreported. I think that is something that particularly these days, people don't want to hear about two parties getting along and uh, that, that doesn't get the clicks that you want. But back then, you know, that was a huge deal for us. And, you know, I, I still talk to several of those folks on a regular basis, particularly when I go back to Texas. So very grateful for them just taking the time to, to show us the way, to write us briefers, to write us memos, to give us tours, like all those things that were up, not only above and beyond, but just incredible. You know, they gave us access to them all the time. And that, that was very, very fortunate and very gracious of them. I didn't expect to hear that, but you're right. It may not get a lot of clicks. It may not sell a lot of newspapers or ads, but the definition of progress is we're all coming. And if you're not bringing all of us with you, then 
that you're not progressing, you're fooling yourself and you're spinning your wheels. That's really interesting because I was sitting there going like, I mean, how do you, who do you even know? How do you even know who to call to, to get this done? Where do I know how to pick this up? But anyways, let's talk about these legendary basketball games. I know you well enough to know you had serious game. I know you can get up and dunk it if you need to. I don't know if you could at 28. I don't know about that, man. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to know about these games. Were you part of these games? Were they competitive? How do you even coordinate a basketball game with 10 people? Uh, tell me about these basketball yeah, games. Yeah, so we just love to play basketball, particularly on election days. So during the primary, we'd always schedule a basketball game. They're super competitive. I mean, he's a competitive guy. And... He doesn't like to uh, lose. He expects, you know, when you're on his team that you that you are competitive too, and don't take it easy on him. Reggie Love, a good friend of mine, who was uh, the president's body guy, would coordinate the games and you know with Secret Service and some staff. Um, he played at Duke, right? Yeah, he played at Duke, and you know, great guy, and just helped to coordinate all that. And Reggie himself was a phenomenal basketball player, so. There were some pretty competitive games. I mean, I remember him going through the lane once and getting knocked up, little bloody lip, and people just sort of froze. <laughs> like, oh, no, what do we do? <laughs> but, you know, that's just how it is. And it's the same way playing cards and as he is playing basketball. Guy wants to win, and that's what I've always sort of liked about him. So you were going hard at him. When you had the ball and he was on you, you're going hard. You have to. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to get called out for not, you know. And you also want to be invited back. You know, if you're not playing hard and you're sort of like just out there just to be out there, you won't get the call back to come play. So you want to compete. And that's that's what he wants around. It's compete, but don't break his <laughs> break his ankle or break his arm. You don't want to be the guy that knocked him over. You don't want to be so that guy. Eventually, you move into an advisor role working for now President Joe Biden. What was the extent of that role? Yeah, so it was really interesting. That role was cool because it was sort of the flip side of what I was doing for the president. On the president's side, it was really the logistics guy on the ground, right? Like making, executing plans that were directed from the White House. And this role was the opposite. I was the one helping to create the plans for others to execute. So I, it was a great sort of transition role from a execution role to thinking about strategy and planning. So that's how that worked out. It was a, I had a great perspective from having been on the road, from having been traveling and, and setting up events. So I tried to impart some of that wisdom, but also tried to let people do what they needed to do on the road successfully on their own. But that was the extent of that role. And it was a, a great way to, for me to get to know the vice president or the president, but also expand and learn a different set of skills when it comes to planning and strategy and also managing people. That was a, a, a very good synopsis of my uh, uh, time with Joe Biden. And I may be overstating this a bit, but it sounds like you're becoming pretty close friends with the president and the vice president at the time. And when I was thinking about this, Kenny, I'm thinking, all right, now some of your friends are the most famous, most covered individuals on the planet. And oftentimes in the middle of controversy or negative press, and I was I was thinking I'm not sure how I would react if my friends' mistakes and setbacks were being celebrated in public, especially if they were out of contacts or with limited information. I'm wondering if it became difficult to take news coverage or listen to criticism. Yeah, I, I did take it very personally early on, particularly 
2008, 9, 10, when we were just getting into the White House. And because you're right, you know, these, you know, these people as people, as humans, you know, their spouses, you know, their kids. Now, I'm not just talking about the president, vice president. I'm talking about the press secretary. I'm talking about senior staff, the chief of staff, things of that nature. These are individuals. These are people. So when you see or hear people talking about them in a negative context, um, without fully understanding any situation, it can be very disheartening, but very upsetting. And you had to develop like thick skin over time. That is something that uh, I had to work on because coming from DC and then traveling back home to Texas, completely different viewpoints, right? And for some reason, Clay, everybody wants to tell me what they think, like right out of the gate. They want to give me their opinion and I'm supposed to sit there and listen to it. Like they're going to change my mind on something. <laughs> could you could you pass this message yeah. to the president? Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> you tell him like, okay, that's my first thing, or you know. So you know, I had to get over that and had to sort of put myself outside of my body in a sense and just let them say what they needed to say. I think for most people, they wanted to get something off their chest, and I was that vessel for them. At the beginning, I got really uh, upset by it, but as I've gotten older, I see it for what it is. And if I need to be that sort of punching bag for 10 minutes, fine. But what you're not going to do is draw me into a debate. Like You're not going to draw me into a conversation about politics, particularly in a non-work setting. I was terrible at that at the beginning. I was very argumentative, back and forth, wanting to prove my point. But now I have no interest in engaging in those types of conversations with people who are coming at me in a combative nature. That's much different when you're just having a conversation and you're talking about policy or, you know, I may disagree with him on this, but I agree on that. There's a big difference in tone. But what I've learned in my ripe old age of 41 is I, I can take a step back. I don't need to win everything. Some things just aren't winnable, and why waste your energy and time uh, on trying to do something that at the end of the day means literally nothing? Well, let's talk about expectations again. You and I both bonded over thinking about outside expectations, and we need to be something special because we're supposed to be. It sounds like maybe you learned to care a little bit less about what others thought and what others' expectations were. Yeah, you have to, and that's just part of, I think, part of growing up a little bit and just taking a step back and saying, you know what, if you really need to have this conversation, I'm not going to push back on it. Say what you need to say. People know where I stand, Clay. It's You can Google me and figure out where I am politically. So if you're approaching me, I know what you're, I know what you're trying to get at. I know you're, I can tell when you're trying to poke the bear. I can tell when your folks are trying to get me to engage. And I just to the point to where there's a limited amount of time on this earth I'm not going to spend any amount of that time talking about this in a situation where I know you're just trying to get me to you know, be combative or, or videotape me saying something or who knows, you know. And you're going to the personal experience. I was more thinking just general coverage. I mean, just general coverage in the media, whether it be from one of the big four covering and maybe it's an honest mistake, but I imagine that has to be difficult. But to hit on what you're talking about, you're you're making me think about my first 10, 12 years were in commercial real estate, which is a great business. A lot of people do it really, really well, but enormous sums of money get traded back and forth. Everyone you deal with is 
wealthy to some extent. And speaking honestly, some of the behavior in that business made me cynical. I still don't like to talk about it because I become a guy I don't really love. I become this cynic, focusing on the negative instead of the positive. And I could have just as easily focused on the people that were doing it right. So I'm wondering, what was your strategy to avoid becoming a cynic? Yeah, look, it's hard not to become a cynic, particularly here in Washington, right? I mean, every day... I did it in Houston. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, every day you're bombarded with news, news coverage, people doing wrong things, people having angles and, uh, you know, the, the constant infighting. So it's, it's tough. And I haven't necessarily achieved non-cynicalness, if you will. But I, for me, I think it's getting back a little bit back to what I said during that transition time with the Bush administration. It's about people, like getting to know people and don't question people's motives. I think sometimes, particularly in politics, there is this end game of winning and winning at all costs. And I think so often people forget that it's truly not politics, it's public service. And if you sort of take a step back and, and think about it in terms of, look, people are just trying their hardest. These are hard jobs. These are hard issues. These are things that no president or vice president has really ever solved. And we're still working to, to do this, no matter what the party uh, in charge is. I think if you put a little bit of humanity on these, these people and not just look at their job titles, that will go a long way. We're going to come back there. Hold that thought for a minute. Let's linger on problem solving because I have a note here on problem solving. I want your take on this. We've both made a career out of problem solving. And I have often said that solving challenging problems takes someone who wants to seek out answers, a, a knowledge seeker, someone who wants to seek out complexity and nuance. Yet oftentimes complexity is lost nowadays in favor of kind of reductive generalizations or simplifications. When tackling those generational problems you were just speaking of, how do you encourage those around you to be curious and actively seek out the complexity that it takes to actually solve them? I always say I, I often tell my team to ask yourself the next question. The first question is easy, whether it be should you do something, yes or no. But the next question is why. Then the next question after that is how. It's about diving in and getting to a level of understanding of issues to where, yeah, things are complicated and things are not going to be nuanced. Because if they weren't, there wouldn't be problems, you know? So um, I, I often tell my team to ask yourself the next question. Additionally, put yourself in someone else's shoes. How could someone else see the same problem that you're looking at? And think about it from their viewpoint. I found I'm a big coalition guy. Like I really believe in coalitions and hearing from different people's perspectives. I am the master of tunnel vision. And if I don't look out, I can run really fast through right to a brick wall. So it's really important for me to, to gain and seek out expertise and experience from other people in order for me to form my own opinion. I may disagree with you, but I appreciate the fact that you have a viewpoint, a strong stance on something. And I think that's how uh, that's how we're going to have to solve problems because one person, one party can't solve big problems. It's just impossible. 
Well, yeah, progress takes hard work. It takes critical thinking. And I think it also takes intellectual humility. I have a similar phrase to yours is that figuring out what we don't like, whether it's about ourselves or our company or our country, that's the easy part. (laughs) And there's a place for that. But the hard part is building something you do like. And human nature is to focus on the former and not the latter. But I love that. It's like, hey, all right, there's a place for this generalization, this tagline, and that's in raising awareness. But now let's build that world we do like or the company we do like or the person we do like. But I think that's great stuff. I want to finish on a conversation about what you were just talking about earlier before I stopped you, what I've called honor, dignity, and respect. I think about this a lot. I used to speak to our former company a lot about not only honor and dignity and respect for your peers, but for yourself, self-pride. And I worry about this in public discourse. So I want to get your perspective here. I want to talk to you about the proper way to treat another human being, specifically an intellectual opponent. When I think of you, Kenny, and it's been a long time since we've talked, but I still think of you as big smiles, warmth, laughter, inclusiveness, you know, everyone's welcome in a room with you. However, when we encounter disagreements or arguments or conflict, I want to know how you think about that. How do you advise young people to work through these insanely complex, challenging disagreements without losing that sight of our common humanity you mentioned earlier? I think it's really important to get to know people as individuals and not as a monolith. It is easy to say they, they disagree with me. They are this, they are that, it is their fault. That's an easy way out. The hard way to face these challenges is to get to know people as individuals. It is much harder to say such hateful things to someone who you know. And it's much easier to build relationships when you can talk about common ground as opposed to always talking about the things you disagree on. But it's so much more difficult to build relationships or to earn trust when you're pointing and saying they. I find that is, that's an easy way out. You have to take a step back and realize you're talking to a human being who is coming from a place that they think is right. You know, they think they're 100% right. They think you're 100% wrong. Neither is true. (laughs) So how do you find that common ground? And I think it's about building relationships. I think it's about taking the time. Everyone wants to have health and have a family that is safe and secure, good schools for your kids, safe water to drink. I mean, these are common things that people want, but what we don't talk about, what we do talk about, excuse me, is what we disagree on. And I think understanding that we are human beings who will never 100% agree on anything, but we can agree on a lot. And why don't we focus on that? And we can chip away the things and have a better understanding of why you think what you think and why I think what I think and come to a realization it's like, Hey, I may disagree with you. I see your point though, but I disagree. That's a much easier uh, way to live, I think. I have, Clay, when I go back to TCU, I just got back from this weekend. And look, it's a conservative university overall. If you look at where it's Texas, right? People know where I come from. People know my political stance. They know I'm a TCU guy. And the conversations I have there, while they can be heated at times. It always ends with, 
Man, I don't know how you got to, I don't know how you went to this school and you, you haven't changed your mind at one at all. But, you know, I think it's because I've learned to have conversations with people and I know, I know, I know your family, you know, my family. And I think that's, it's a much harder task to, to be so negative when you know someone and you know their background. And I think it all really stems from the very beginning of this conversation. We grew up in a town where people didn't all look alike. We all had different backgrounds. We all had different income levels, but we were all in the same community and schools together. And for me, I've taken that throughout my career. Like knowing that I had some very rich friends, but I had some very poor friends and I had a bunch of us that were like right in the middle and having to understand and interact and play and win with all sets of folks really helped me, man. It really helped me to turn the temperature down, try to be as disarming as possible. That is really how I want to present myself. As you said, I've always wanted to be an open person, open book. I want to turn the temperature down and let, let people have conversations. You know, that's why I think this is such a great idea. I so agree with what you're saying. I'm shaking my head here. I'd also look to my time growing up where we did outside of Austin as such an advantage because I mentioned not knowing the summation symbol at Rice. There were places where I was behind, but there were other places like what you're just talking about where I was light years ahead of people. And I knew that. I knew I had that strength that I have been experienced and schooled in ways that they hadn't. And I was able to bring that context to conversations and bring that equanimity that you're talking about. And I also believe, like you, that we should have a default setting of inclusive charitable interpretations of one another until proven otherwise. We should strive to see the best in one another. I do know that some people will hear this and say, well, that's naive, Clay. That's naive, Kenny. But I'll leave you with this. Number one, it certainly makes for a more enjoyable, fulfilling life. But I'll challenge you to think what's the more probable explanation that something happened because you're part of X or Y group or something happening because you're human. Well, the difference is because you're human is inclusive. And do you know Polly Murray, the 60s black queer activist? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She says that great quote where every time you draw a circle that excludes me, I'm going to draw a bigger one and include you. And I was thinking that quote when you were speaking is like, that's what you're saying is that, yeah, keep drawing that smaller circle. All I'm going to do is erase that damn thing and draw a circle that's bigger and include us. And I just, I find those things comforting, but man, last thought, I just, I mean, that's a great note to live linger on, but anything else you want to add or share just on that topic or any others? No. Yeah. Listen, man, I, I think I've tried throughout my career based on my athletic experience to be as inclusive building teammate the best I could possibly be. There is no doubt without my athletic career that I would have any measure of success, whatever you want to call success. I love the idea that a group who doesn't come from the same place, different backgrounds, but we got to row the boat, as they say in Minnesota, <laughs> you know? <laughs> We got to go, we got to do this uh, together. We got to win together. And I think that, you know, for me, that's really started our time in Pflugerville, man. Like it really has, it really did. Well, I appreciate your message. I appreciate you being here, buddy, and sharing your story. Thank you so much, man. Thanks, buddy. It's good to see you, man. This has been great.